Uh, so we are in a sermon series currently uh, going through the uh, seven letters to the churches of Revelation. Uh, this is uh, found in Revelation chapter two and three. Um, and so today's text, we're going to be in um, chapter two of the book of Revelation, starting in verse eight. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, it is going to be on the screen. We also have some hardback black ones in the seat pocket in front of you. Um, and it will either be on page 1028 or 965 in those. We have two different sizes, so the pages are off. Uh, but you can turn there uh, or you can turn there in your own Bible. And so once again, it's Revelation chapter two. If you're able and willing this morning, if you could stand with me for the reading of God's word, we're going to read together. So Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 8. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says of the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. I want to thank Eric for being a stud because he is up here doing the hosting after having dental work done that didn't go great for him. And if you ever ever had that, it's miserable, right? It's it's rough. So big ups to Eric for doing that. Um, you know, though, I did have one uh, dentist story. I just thought about it while I was walking up here, and it was good. You know, every time I tell someone, when you first meet someone, they ask you what you do, I'm always like, oh, man, here it goes. Because I have to say I'm a pastor. It never goes well from there. They're like, oh, okay, yeah. And then they start talking to their wife. That's the end of it, you know? So anyway, I went to the dentist and I was talking with the, the dentist and I have had bad dental work experience. If you're a dentist, by the way, bless you, brother. I'm not trying to hate on you, but I've had bad dental work experience. Anyway, I sat down and I was talking with the dentist and, and uh, <laughs> he says to me, listen, I've heard, you know, they did the whole pre-op thing and they asked me about my previous dental history. Well, I told them and it was sad. And so then the guy comes in and he says, you know, I heard that, you know, you're a little bit, you know, nervous and afraid around dentists. And I was like, yeah, I mean, you could say that. He goes, well, I guess that makes us even because pastors have scared me in the past too, so I don't feel bad for you. <laughs> and I was like, I love this guy. Anyway, he was a great dentist, by the way, and we have a great relationship now, but I thought that was amazing that he was honest with me about that. Okay, that has nothing to do with the sermon. Good morning. My name's Court. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. We're walking through Revelation, uh, the seven churches, uh, the seven letters to the seven churches of Revelation. Last week, we worked through Ephesus. This week, we get to talk about the church at Smyrna. And so I'm excited to do so. Uh, Smyrna is unique in that there's only two churches out of all seven of these churches that Jesus writes to through John that don't receive a rebuke from the Lord. And Smyrna is one of those. So Smyrna is a city along the trade route that these, all of these cities are uh, located in. Uh, Smyrna is just north of Ephesus. So Jesus is kind of making his rounds on this trade route. And he's going to speak to Smyrna in specific uh, because this letter doesn't have a rebuke from the Lord, I want us to have a name that's a little bit different. Number one, I want us to receive the encouragement from the Lord that's provided here to this church where it's appropriate. And then also to hear what we can learn from the warning that Jesus gives them. Because he kind of gives them a prophetic warning. And however we can apply that, I would like to by the help of the Spirit. And so before we jump into the text, let me pray for us. If you'll bow your heads, I'll pray that the Lord will speak to us through his word. Father, thank you. Um, thank you that your word is true. 
that we don't have to search for truth anywhere else. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're still the chief shepherd, the good, the good shepherd of your church. Thank you that you even now are speaking to us through your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask now, would you open our hearts to receive, our minds to hear and understand. Lord, we long not to simply go through the motions, but to hear from you in a way that transforms us and changes us from the inside out. So we do submit to you now in that way so that as we approach your word humbly, that Holy Spirit, you would minister to all of our unique needs. That's our request. Minister to us uniquely as we desperately need it. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Okay, so I'm going to read through this. Uh, let's start in verse number eight. It says this, to the angel of church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and who came to life. Jesus says to them, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And I know the slander of those who say, who say they are Jews, but they are not. They are of the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you'll have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. So what we have here is there is uh, the church, the Christians, which predominantly would have more than likely be made, be made up of both Jews and Gentiles who have been convinced through the ministry of most likely Paul the apostle, but one of the disciples through preaching, they had been convinced and they had been converted to Christ. So you got this mixed bag of both Jew and Gentile, which has been the church ever since the beginning, right? There's a mixed bag of all of us from all sorts of different backgrounds. And they're living in a city where there is the, the Jewish uh, church still exists or the Jewish synagogue still exists. Now, some of them would have been, these are their brothers and sisters they had most likely grown up with, they had most likely worshipped with, they probably had family members that were friends with their family members, and they lived in the same city, and yet now, because these people had converted to Christ, there's this Jewish community who had basically begun to hate them, and had begun to slander them because they were worshipping Jesus and not what they had considered to be spiritual purity to worship Yahweh alone. And so now they had, they had said things like Jesus was the Messiah, which was blasphemous to these Jews. And they had begin, begun to be angry about this. And so they started slandering them. And in particular, what we know historically, both through the Bible and through historical record, is most likely they're not just slandering them like, hey, I'm talking bad about you behind your back. They're most likely going to the governmental authorities and telling lies about them in the hopes that those Roman authorities would then exert power over them. It goes something like this. They tell a half-truth or a half-lie, depending upon the way you look at it. They say to the Roman authorities, these Christians won't worship Caesar as king, which is true, right? Which is true, the Christian church wouldn't worship Caesar as king. And then they tell the lie, which is attached to that, which says, therefore they are rebellious, dangerous, harmful group of people that should be snuffed out because they'll overthrow the kingdom. They have, a, they have a desire to be violent and they want another king to take Caesar's place. Now that is a lie. But nonetheless, it's a powerful lie because it's attached to something that's true. If you just went to the Christian church and said, you must bow your knee to Caesar, they were required to say, no, we believe that Jesus is king. And so then it was easy to persecute them, right? But they never really asked if the argument about whether or not they were violent or a threat to the state, or, they don't ask that question. They simply ask, do you bow the knee to Caesar? And that's a, that's a very powerful argument against the Christian church. This is what the Jews would bring to the Roman officials. We know this because Acts 17, verses 6 through 7, it says this. 
when Paul is planting a church in Thessalonica, the Jews stir up a mob and they say to the authorities, these men have upset the world and they act contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king named Jesus. So this has already happened in other cities. It's happening here in Smyrna. And the Christians are being attacked by their Jewish brothers and sisters through political means. And as is typical, the lies that are being told about them are just the half-truths, but they're, because they're half-truths, it makes them more credible. And so it ends up leading them into this situation of hardship, trial, suffering, persecution. And Jesus shows up and says, I know what you're dealing with. I know what's going on. I know how bad it is. And in so doing, he ratchets up the severity of it in a way that maybe you don't see at first glance. He does, he does so in two ways. The first thing he says, hey, it's going to get worse. <laughs> like, okay, thanks, Jesus. Like, Jesus shows up and says, hey, these guys are going to get worse. They're going to try to throw you into prison. You're going to have to face persecution, even death. They're, they're, they're coming for blood. It's bad. But then he does something that maybe even ratchets it up another level, which oftentimes we miss. And he says, listen, you may think that you're battling your fellow older brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith and that they hate you and you have this family feud going on. He says, no, actually it's the devil. The devil is animating this opposition against you. The devil is after you. The devil is going to destroy you. And he's the one who's influencing this group of people. So the one who's really behind it is the dark, nefarious force, the enemy, the spiritual warfare. Now you might say in one sense, it's like, oh, well, that gives you a little more grace for your old brothers and sisters. But on the other sense, it's like, do you really want to fight the devil or your brother? I don't know. The devil seems like a pretty serious foe. So he ratchets it up a little bit. Now, I've said this a number of times, but I think it's important to mention here. My first, when I came to know Christ, first of all, I came to know Christ outside the church, but my first church experience was in the charismatic church. If you have any charismatic church peeps in the house, all right, we have that to, in common. And I have found there's, there's really only, there's like two major poles that people see spiritual warfare on. They, they have a struggle to get into the middle of the road, which is where the Bible is. And the charismatic church, which was my early experience, was that you just blame everything on the devil, or at least most things. So it's like something as serious as, you know, sickness in your household. You're like, we're going to pray the devil out of this. You know, like, it ain't going to happen. Or maybe your kids are acting up at school. It's like they're, they're sinful, but there's also Satan. And you're like, so is there a demonic possession in the house? You know, you're trying to figure it out. You guys know what I mean. If, you're in the, if you've been in the charismatic church, you know it. There's Jericho marches, there's tambourines, there's holy waters, many things. Shofars will break the curses. There's all kinds of stuff. And it's because they have a really high active thought process about spiritual warfare, okay? And, and they're, they're re regularly recognizing it. And one thing that I love about it is they're, un, they're unashamedly, unabashedly willing to pray and get down on their knees and start really having this battle in the spirit, right? But it gets over-exaggerated in some senses and it becomes kind of a joke. You know, something serious or something like, you know, your coffee can spill in the morning, you show up to work and you're like, the devil's been after me this morning, you know? That's one side. The other side that I've seen, because I've had an opportunity to be in the, the breadth of the theological expression, is ignoring that the devil's even in a force at all. Every problem that you ever face is just your sin or just, forgive me for saying this, but this is in the Proverbs, so if you're mad that your kids are in there, or your stupidity. It's either your sin or stupid. Those are the only two examples. It's not Satan because that's not a thing. You just don't want to acknowledge your own sin or that you're too stupid to do the right thing. And so it's, a, it's a, a co-opting of sin and stupidity that creates what you are. And that has nothing to do with the spiritual uh, warfare. And so all of your spiritual warfare talk is really just you trying to uh, absolve yourself of personal responsibility, right? These are the two polar ends, right? I believe that the scripture actually leads us to a third way, a middle way, the right way. And by that, I simply mean 
that what Jesus is saying here is, I think it would be rejected by many today if your pastor got up and said to you, the hardship that you're facing is being animated by the devil. You'd be like, oh man, this guy, he's, getting, he's going off the rails. Or maybe some of you might be like, uh-huh, now we're getting to it. It's always been and it will always be vitally important for Christians to be reminded the battles they fight each day are not primarily physical, but spiritual battles. For thousands of years, Christians have fundamentally known this fact, and it really wasn't until the Enlightenment that we started to see more of a materialistic understanding of Christianity be the primary way that we saw life. C.S. Lewis said it like this, you are not physical beings having a spiritual experience. You are spiritual beings having a physical experience. It's a different way of seeing your life. The essence of who you are is spiritual. And it's being met upon birth with the physicality. This is what Christianity offers that nothing else offers. That's why Jesus being the God-man is very unique to any other world religion. He is simultaneously divine and human. He brings heaven and earth together in his person. That's what Christianity is. When we attach ourselves to Jesus by faith, we're acknowledging there's a spiritual, there's a physical, all under the authority of Christ our King. But we can't ignore either of those. We have to see them both. Now, What does that mean for Smyrna? Well, if the slander and the attacks that are coming from these Jews is enticed and influenced by Satan, Jesus is telling them, you cannot combat these attacks with earthly means. Even though the battle may seem like it's being fought on earthly ground with earthly arguments, you're not meant to fight with earthly weapons. Our primary weapons of warfare are to be spiritual weapons, things like prayer and preaching, things like fasting and faith. That's what the Bible tells us we're supposed to battle with. You guys have read Ephesians chapter 6, the whole armor of God text. If you did any like student ministry, right, you probably, like, I remember when we were like back in the 90s, like I saw on YouTube, there was this 90s youth pastor that like literally wore the armor of God on the stage. And I was like, man, this is a problem. But, you know, trying to explain it to the kids. Now, here's the thing. What we're missing here is it's, it's, What Paul is doing is trying to draw our minds out of the materialistic, physical plane that we all are living our lives in to say there's a bigger, greater battle that's happening that's beyond what you can see and touch and taste and smell and feel. And that if you don't recognize that, then you perhaps you might be distracted to fight a fight that's not actually yours to fight. Now, So where do we stand here with reading what's happening in Samaria? On one hand, we want to guard against an exaggerated worldview of spiritual warfare that would make us think that it's always the devil, that it's never sin, it's it's never ourselves, it's never our own stupidity, it's just, you know, it's always the devil. That actually does absolve you of personal responsibility if you're not careful. On the flip side, we also want to guard against this pseudo-materialist view that the Christian life is nothing about spiritual warfare, that Satan's activity is not a real thing, and that there's not a prince of the power of the air that's wiring things in order to be in opposition to the church. That's just not, it's just anti-biblical. The Bible tells us specifically that there is spiritual warfare going on. We have to see it for what it is. I think the best way we can do this is to be biblically minded, okay, in all of our endeavors. Be honest about our sins. So don't like come home and your wife's like, baby, why did you not take the trash out? And you're like, babe, you know why? Because the devil's out for me. And he's out for you too. That's why I forgive you for all your problems, you know? Don't do that. (laughs) Be honest about your sin. I I am a sinner in need of God's grace. Okay, you're confronted about that. Don't try to blame it away. If you look at the garden, this does happen, right? Adam, why did you do this? Well, it was the Eve's fault. He actually says, the woman you gave me. It's like, 
It's like kind of like, it's her fault and kind of yours, you know? And then he's like, Eve, what'd you do? He's like, there's a snake in the garden talking, you know? And this is kind of like, a, it's a snake's fault, but why did you let a snake talk, you know? This is kind of like a your fault thing, right? So we don't want to do that. We want to be honest about our sin, but we want to be aware of the enemy. We don't want to be duped by this idea that he doesn't exist. And we want to be prayerful for discernment, right? We want to be prayerful for discernment. There's a, there's a book called The Screwtape Letters. I have a few quotes I wanted to read for you. They won't be on the, on the screen, but Screwtape Letters is a book written by C.S. Lewis, which is basically, a, it's an allegory of an undersecretary demon who is being written letters by his, uh, his leader or his captain, right, who's also his uncle. And this captain demon is teaching his undersecretary demon how he should tempt Christians. It's a really fascinating book talking about spiritual warfare. But one of the, one of the things that uh, he, he says here, which I thought was, I thought it was incredible to read. Basically, he says, it's funny how, how they, they being Christians, picture things in their mind when they try to think of spiritual warfare. They, they conjure up images in their mind. But he says it's ironic because our best work is done by keeping things out of their mind. He's like, they conjure up ideas of what demons look like and they think that's what spiritual warfare is when in reality what we're really doing is just keeping them from actually seeing the truth. The demon's best work is done by blinding you, not by trying to put a bunch of things in your mind. It's incredible. It's incredible. Okay, now, so we can stop by saying, what is Jesus really after here in Samaritan? The first thing that he's after is to say, Christians, at times things can seem and can be even worse than they do seem. Like Smyrna's already dealing with it here, but now Jesus gives them a prophetic word saying it's going to get worse. And he also says, and just so you know, the devil's behind it all. It's like, oh man, if there's one thing we know about Christian heritage, it's that Christians throughout time and throughout history go through really hard times. It can be really difficult to be a Christian. I know I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to like give you the pitch on why to follow Jesus. Okay. And most people don't want to give you the pitch by saying it's going to be tough, but that's a reality. It's honestly following the evangelism strategy of Jesus. Jesus, when he meets up with Paul, he meets him on the road to Damascus and says, come, follow me. I'll show you all that you're going to suffer for my namesake. It's like, man, if it's not supernatural, you're not following that pitch. You know, when you go into Costco and you got the salesman's coming after you, they're not going to tell you, come, let me tell you how little you're going to get for your money. And yet this is the call of Jesus is come in and, and deal with this struggle with this suffering but then there's point number two and point number two is important I mean I don't want you to leave here without this one things are never as bad as they seem for the Christian things are never as bad as they seem for the Christian so they can get rough but they're never as bad as you think they are listen to and I'm just going to roll through the text what does Jesus say about himself and about the church in light of that in verse eight the very first part he says these are the words of the first and the last in other words, Jesus always has the last word. This nullifies all slander that's happening to these Christians at this time. Listen to me. No one else gets to have the last word about your life, even those who slander you. Only Jesus gets that. And because you're in Christ, his words about you will be true and good. In the end, there's only going to be truth and Christ, not the slander, will be the last. Okay, then the back half of verse eight, what does he say? I'm the one who died and came to life. Jesus went through death before us. And he tells us it's not the worst thing that can happen 
You're going to see this in just a second when he talks about the second death. But Christ triumphed over death, and he says, all of my people, everyone who is mine, will also triumph over death. Verse 9, he says this, I know your works, I know your toil, your patient endurance. Your tribula- I'm sorry, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, and I know those who slander you. Jesus tells the church he knows your pain. Jesus knows your pain. He's not a distant king. He's not far off. He's not unable to sympathize with your weaknesses and your trouble. He is near to us. He knows us. He knows you better than you know yourself. He calls us to be thankful, not resentful because of the pain, but be thankful because he cares for us. He will carry you in your pain. He will rescue you in your pain. Verse 9, he's going to go on to say, even though you're in poverty, you're rich. What does he mean? Even in prison, even in death, even in hardship, you are rich because you have me. Or how about this? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Or Romans chapter 8, if you are children of God, then you are heirs of God. And if you are heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, then the suffering that you experience in this life cannot be compared to the glory that will be revealed in you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is Jesus' words telling us you have a soul wealth even if you are broke. Now for Smyrna, this would be tough, right? Because they're in, they're in a prestigious city, very wealthy city, but the Christians are impoverished. Why? Most likely there's this political pressure that they can't get jobs because people don't want to hire them because they're being slandered. Jesus says, listen, as hard as what you're going through is, you are wealthy in the soul. Verse 10, you will receive the crown of life, be faithful till the end. When the, when the fight is fought, the race is run, and you die one day at the finish line. There will be a wreath that is placed on your head, the crown of everlasting life. No more pain, no more slander, no more shame, no more tears, no more depression, no more frustration, no more discouragement. There's just life and light and joy and glory forever and ever. Jesus says, don't forget this. And then lastly, he tells them you're not going to be hurt by the second death, meaning there's a first death, which is physical, but there's a second death in Revelation that says that it's eternal separation from God, eternal separation from him forever. He says, you won't even be touched by this because you'll be with me forever and ever and ever. God is not mainly in the business of sparing us from the first death or the pain that leads to it. He is utterly devoted to rescuing everyone from the second death. Okay. Now, why do I point these out that it's never as bad as you think that it is. Because if we just read that and just stopped, we could go home today and say, wow, as bad as it could ever get, there's always, if these things are true for us, then that means that it can never get so bad that we would be despairing if that's true. If we really do believe what the scripture says, we really do believe that, that we're a pilgrims in this life and sojourners in this life and even all the circumstances we may face, if all that's true, we got a lot to look forward to because eternity is a lot longer than here on earth. And wow, what, a, what an amazing promise this is. But I want to say in the same way that I've seen, at least in my church experience, that there's both overly what I would call charismania, and then there's also, you know, over here some stodginess, not not acknowledging that there's any spiritual warfare at all. I also have seen this in the way that we have emotional intelligence in the church. I call it like Pleasantville Christianity or Stormcrow Christianity. You guys remember Pleasantville? I think it was a movie in the 90s. If you haven't ever seen it, it's okay. But it starts in black and white, right? And in Pleasantville, what you have is, you know, Mom and dad wake up and they don't have a stiff neck. It's like they just wake up and jump out of bed. Don't even need coffee, you know. 
Dad gets his suit on. Mom goes into the kitchen and cooks and never, never has one feminist word to say about it. Just happy the whole time. Here, sweetheart, kiss, peck on the cheek. They get in the car and they drive. The kids are not disobedient. They're all dressed and ready to go. So, so happy to go to school, Dad. They go to school. They're straight A's. It shows the kids at basketball practice. They all shoot. All of the basketballs go in simultaneously. Nobody misses shots. Dad goes into his job. He's never tired at work. His boss is really thankful for him, you know, because he's such a great worker. And Pleasantville gives you this picture of everything goes right. And what I've seen is that at times in the church, this is what's expected of Christians whenever you show up on a Sunday morning. Here's how it goes. How are you doing? Great. Or in the charismatic church, here's the line, highly favored and truly blessed. If you've never heard that, I'm just telling you, that's a thing. It's real. I remember when I was a young Christian, I'm like, man, these people are always happy. Like, that's kind of nice. How are you doing, brother? Highly favored and truly blessed, brother. How are you doing? You know, everybody's happy. Everybody's good. Nothing goes wrong. It's like the kids come in and they look pristine. You know, they got suits and ties on and stuff. I'm like, whoa, that's not my childhood. You know, I came in looking ratty, Cheetos on my, Cheeto stains on my fingers, you know. And here's the thing. That's reality for all of us. The Pleasantville is not the reality. The reality is that we're all broken. We're all sinners. You, you know, you probably came to church today and your kids weren't all that obedient and nobody got up wanting to cook breakfast and you're probably hungry right now, mad that I'm talking this long. You had three cups of coffee. It still isn't working and you're wondering if you can get on medication that will help for this. You know, crick in your neck. All that, that's all real. It's happening to you right now. And if the temptation is that I got to come in and pretend like that's not the case, that's exhausting, right? Now, Let's swing to the other pendulum. And I think this is what, this, the other pendulum is Jesus kind of saying, hey, don't fall into what Storm Crow Christianity or Eeyore Christianity. And this would be that we have such a heavy view of the darkness of the world, a heavy view of sin. And, and, and listen, I'm all about having all of those things. I really am. My problem is when Christians have such a high view and a deep view of sin that they, it diminishes their view of Christ and glory and joy and hope and peace. All the fruits of the Spirit become these far-off things that we could never attain because we recognize how dark and dreary things are and how sinful we are. This is where you say, how are you doing? And it's like, oh, how much time do you have? Or you say something like this, hey, how are you doing, man? And they're like, I'm, I'm good. And someone leans in and goes, are you really good? Touches you on the chest. How's your soul? Just gives you a dead, dead stare. Listen, I appreciate guys like this because sometimes they're, they're like, all right, you know, I, I need to say something. But then it's like, we're digging for sin, you know, we're going to figure out. And here's the thing. If you dig for long enough, things are bad. Anybody else? Like for me, it's like, oh, COVID, terrible. National political, terrible. Kids can't go to school, terrible. Inflation, terrible. Traffic, all this construction, terrible. I don't want to sit in lines all the time, you know? I go to Chick-fil-A. I could be, man, I love Chick-fil-A. And then the lines are long. Terrible. If I think for long enough, it's all bad. And if you ask me for long enough, I'll go, you know what? It is bad. If I think for long enough about it and you ask me, how, where, where are things really going wrong? For most of us, we don't have to think long. It's like, well, where do I start? 
And how do we know? Because we do live in a fallen world, so that's all true stuff. But here's the problem. When Christians live that way, irrespective and neglecting all of the amazing things that Jesus just said, then they actually display an untruth about what it looks like to be a Christian. They only display half the truth, that we live in a sinful and fallen world and that we are sinners in need of grace. They don't teach that Jesus came, lived and died and was resurrected to redeem us. He's now given us eternal hope and we have everything to celebrate. Christians should be primarily celebratory. It doesn't mean we never mourn. We mourn with those who mourn. We weep with those who weep. But you know what we forget to do when we're storm crows? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Did you know you can laugh? You have now been given permission. You can rejoice. You can have a good time. You can have a good time without second guessing whether or not that good time was like just a little bit too much of a good time. You know what I mean? It's one of those Vintage 21 Jesus videos where they dub over the voice of Jesus. You guys know what I'm talking about? If you've never seen this, first of all, they're amazing and I've never seen them, but I enjoy them. <laughs> you know, it's got Jesus walking and some, they dub over his voice and he's talking to the disciples. And he's like, Peter, I saw you smoking a cigarette behind the rock yesterday, you know? Philip, where's your WWJD bracelet? Bartholomew, you drank too much last night. Not way too much, but just enough to make me mad. <laughs> this is sometimes the view that we have of Christ and of life. And here's what I want to say. I feel like this is a defining moment for the church right now because if we just were to be cultural critics and not look to Jesus, we have a lot to mourn over. But if we look to Jesus, we can simultaneously mourn over the losses and rejoice in the fact that Jesus still rules and reigns. He still has his hand over his church. He's protecting and guarding us. The future is secure for us. We know where we're headed. And even if all of the earthly circumstances seem to be low, we know what's ahead of us in Christ. What I'd like to do is simultaneous. I'm not trying to tell you to remove yourself from reality. I'm saying firmly root yourself in the whole reality. Listen, guys, there's a lot of things that are going wrong. Jesus is still king, and he's your king, and he's a good king, and he's a righteous king, and he's a powerful king, and he's got things under control, and he's not up there having a conference with the Trinity trying to figure out how he's going to fix the political climate of the United States of America in 2021. He's got this handled. So even in all of our circumstances, what can we do? Well, we can rejoice in suffering, like Paul says in Philippians. The church always shines the brightest when they breathe in the reality of spiritual wealth that's been given to them in Christ. And what's the call from Jesus here? And this is the last part, faithfulness unto death. That's what he says, which sounds really intense, but man, is there some hope here. He tells them to be faithful unto death and I'll give you the crown of life. And he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquered, he will not be hurt by the second death. So here's what you got. Smyrna is dealing with the threat of real, physical, death. It's real. He tells them, hey, they might th they're going to throw you into prison. It's going to be 10 days of tribulation. Some of you are going to have to face that. It's going to be tough. And Jesus still unequivocally calls faithfulness unto death. And here's what I want to say. In all of our hardship, whether it be general hardship or specific persecution, Christians, we have God's purposes in the hardship and you have Satan's purposes in the hardship. These are the two competing purposes. Think of the book of Job. Job's purpose is to harm Job's body and those around him. So circumstances first, right? God says don't touch his body. So it starts with circumstances, then it lends itself to physical harm. And he asked God for permission to do this for one reason and one reason alone. He wants him to curse God and die, right? He wants to prove that he will vocalize that God is not his God or that God is not true. He wants to, him to vocalize this recanting, this blasphemy, this slander against God. 
And it starts with the circumstances, it ends with the physical. Then you have God's purposes. What are God's purposes in Job's suffering? Well, that's the whole book, isn't it? Job's like, what are you up to? Like I was righteous, then you did this. It's like if, if righteousness is the end game, wasn't I doing okay? Like I, they said right, Job was the most righteous man in the land. You'd think if he's the most righteous man in the land, you leave this guy alone, right? You, can't, you don't want to make him more righteous than he already is. What's the point of it for Job? What's God's purposes? This is what the whole book's about is Job wrestling with this. And I'm not going to pretend like I can take one, the wisdom literature of Job and answer it in one line, but here's what I will say. God's purposes with Job have everything to do with his relationship with Job. That Job gets God and therefore Job gets everything. And for Job to know that beyond all of the things that God had gifted him with, that that's not the real gift. The real gift is that he gets God. That he questions God and God shows up and answers. Even though God doesn't have to show up and answer any of us about anything, but he loves us. Okay, so think about the suffering of Smyrna here. The suffering of Smyrna, I want you to know this. Death is not the end goal from Satan here. That's not the end game. That's the means through which he can accomplish the end game, which is the hope that they will turn away from God and slander God. It's, it's interesting, isn't it? He's using slander in the hopes that that slander will beget slander. Satan's hope is that he will harm them physically in order to distract them enough that they would recant spiritually. Another way to put this is physical death's not the goal, spiritual death's the goal. And Jesus is saying, hey, just because you physically die doesn't mean you spiritually die. Don't worry, it's a lie. Jesus is saying to face it and be faithful even unto the end. The idea here is that the most suffering and hardship that comes from the devil is a game of distortion and distraction. It's a way for us to think that what's happening circumstantially and physically is the priority of our lives to distract us from what's happening spiritually so that we will capitulate spiritually, which is really the main thing that the devil cares about in the first place. If you've never heard of this book, it's called The Art of War by Sun Tzu, very old book. And it's talking about battles and how generals should look at the battlefield. And listen to what he says here. The whole secret lies in confusing the enemy so that he cannot even fathom our real intent. Let me say that again. The whole secret lies in confusing the enemy so that he cannot even fathom our real intent. Satan's whole aim is to confuse you so much that you don't even know what he's really after. And so you might go to protect that which is physical and what he's after is spiritual. You try to protect your circumstances, he cares nothing about them. He could care less if you were wealthy or if you were poor. He cares if you love Jesus. If you're rich and you love Jesus, he hates you. If you're poor and you love Jesus, he hates you. He does not care about the external because he knows the real end game is in the soul. And if you use the example of Peter walking on the water, we know that ultimately the distraction was the circumstances in the storm. And we turned his eyes away from Christ, he sinks. He's in the storm still, but Jesus is in the storm with him. It's Hebrews chapter 12, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, the A to the Z. <laughs> we look to Jesus and then the storms ultimately disperse. So like Smyrna, we will always find ourselves faced with hardships and trials. Some of them will be specific, like persecution for Christianity, and some of them will be general. But nonetheless, they will be animated by an enemy. And the question becomes, how will we be faithful to the end? How will we be faithful until the end? Well, I think there's a lot of ingredients to faithfulness, and I could, I could go over it for a long time. 
trusting Jesus, being courageous, strength, unity, all of these things. But I think maybe the most helpful thing we could do is say, what's our first step towards faithfulness? And the first step towards faithfulness that I can see is Hebrews chapter number 12, which is on the heels, not ironically and not coincidentally, of the hall of faith. So if you want to know about faithful people, you read Hebrews 11, all these faithful people, right? I mean, I can go on and talk about them, but it's, it's Abel and it's Moses and it's Enoch and it's Noah and it's David and it's Joseph and it's Rahab. It's all these faithful acts of obedience. But then Hebrews 12 starts and says, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run our race with endurance. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What did he do? He endured the suffering. He faced down the suffering. Who did he do it for? You and me. So what's the answer of faithfulness to Jesus? It's just completely destroying the lofty arguments coming at us from the enemy that are always aimed at distracting you from your eyes being on Jesus. Listen to me. He, even when the arguments are morally neutral or even good arguments to have, as long as he can get you to have arguments that distract you from Jesus, he wins. Are you hearing me on this? Morally neutral things and good things, if they ultimately turn you from Jesus, are winning battles for him. And that's what he's after. Suffering is this way. If I can tear you down, then maybe you'll go after something else to comfort yourself. If that something else is not Jesus, I win. I'll tear you down. I'll tear you down, whether it's physically or circumstantially. And then maybe you'll start thinking, you know what? Why is Jesus forsaking me? Why is he leaving me here? Why is he allowing this? This was Job's argument. But if you still obey and worship Jesus like Job did, it's a losing battle. In fact, at that moment, he's got danger zone written all over you because you are not his. And he hates that. Listen to this last line. This is closing just for the sake of time. I could go on, but listen to this from Screwtape. He says to his little undersecretary demon, our cause is never more in danger than when a human being looks around him for the traces of God in his life and seems like all of it has vanished. And then he asks God, why have you forsaken me? And yet still he obeys him. He says, it's in that moment that our cause is never in more danger. Well, we'll lose him now because he, we have now taken everything from him and he still says, but I trust you, Lord, and I'll obey you. This is the book of Job when Job says, naked I came into this world and naked I shall leave. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The enemy knew at this moment, he's in danger zone. He's never gonna get this guy because even when you take everything away, he still has Jesus. And friends, this is my encouragement to you in a time where who knows what's next for us. But what I can be certain of is that no matter what is next for us, Jesus is with us and the call is always the same looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter, or as Jesus says here, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Turn your eyes to Jesus. Turn your eyes to the Lord this morning. If you'll stand to your feet, I'll pray for us. Father, I confess to you that I don't, I don't know the various types of hardship, the various types of trial, the various types of suffering in the room, but I know, Lord Jesus, that there are those who suffer, those who are in travail, those who are in trial. God, prevent us from pretending to be in Pleasantville. Prevent us from not seeing the joy that's in you and only being in Stormcrow. But most of all, my God, I ask this morning, would you turn our eyes to you, Lord Jesus? You are with us in the fire. You are with us in the storm. Let us turn our eyes to you. 
so that we might be strengthened for that which is to come. God, help us, help us to hear your words, not just to Smyrna, but to us this morning, so that we could find real delight. And finally, Lord, we ask that you'd keep us aware, but not obsessed about spiritual battles. Keep us aware, but not obsessed. Because Lord, it's, it's more, more than it's about sin, Satan, suffering, Jesus, it's about you, our Savior, so help us, help us to turn our eyes to you. We ask these things in your name. Amen.